Software Engineering Daily examines the world through the lens of software engineering. In most episodes, an expert in a particular topic joins the show as a guest, and we go into deep technical detail. Occasionally, we like to do episodes where we survey a collection of topics. In today's topic roundtable, Caleb Meredith and Cortland Allen join me for a discussion of several questions. Would it make sense for Facebook to build an operating system? Does online advertising work? How can you work productively on an engineering company with your brother as a co-founder? We also discuss many other questions. Cortland is the founder of IndieHackers.com, which was recently acquired by Stripe. And Caleb Meredith is the lead JavaScript correspondent of Software Engineering Daily. This was a blast talking to both of them, and we plan to do more roundtable episodes in the future. We have been hearing feedback from people who like these things, and we'd like to get your feedback too. Please fill out the Software Engineering Daily listener survey. It's available on softwareengineeringdaily.com slash survey. Also, Software Engineering Daily is having our third meetup, which is Wednesday, May 3rd at Galvanize in San Francisco. The theme of this meetup is fraud and risk in software. We're going to have great food. We'll have engaging speakers, a friendly intellectual atmosphere. You can find more at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup. And please, if you're going to attend, please sign up now so we know how much food to order. Now let's get on with this episode. Cortland Allen runs Indie Hackers, and Caleb Meredith is a lead JavaScript correspondent with Software Engineering Daily. Guys, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So today we're going to be doing a topic roundtable. We're going to have a host of things that we're talking about. It'll be a bit of a freewheeling conversation, and we're going to touch on various themes in computer science, themes in the news today, themes in software engineering and business, and... I've got a bunch of stuff, but let's start with Facebook. Caleb, you mm-hmm. recently did a show about the future of React Native. Yeah. You also did a show recently about WebAssembly. There is a lot of exciting changes going on in terms of the web. And when you have fundamental technological shifts like this, it creates opportunities for market disruption. And the market disruption that I think of Facebook as being most well-poised to attack right now is perhaps the mobile operating system market. Mm. If Facebook wanted to build a mobile operating system today, what would the tech stack for that mobile operating system be? Yeah, so you were the first one to introduce this idea of like a Facebook operating system to me. And of course, as a regular user of React and React Native, this idea is incredibly attractive, right? So Facebook's like working up and down the entire stack. So at the lowest level, you'd probably have something like a, a C++, right? Where you could run a V8 or a JavaScript engine to then run React Native on top. You might sneak in some OCaml or Reason stuff that they've been working in there to get some more native performance and nicer APIs. And then yeah, on top of that, you'd have React Native, you'd have React, maybe sprinkle in some GraphQL, right? And basically merge all of Facebook's open source technical properties to create an operating system, which would be incredibly fun to develop and especially for the community they've built. Do you think it would be Linux based? I'm not sure about that. It definitely could be, but Facebook has enough engineers where if they wanted to do something that was custom and unique, they definitely could. Which is, I think, what Google is doing. I think Google's building an operating system from scratch. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have seen that. I, I can't remember what the name of it is. Cortland, from a business point of view, would the ROI of making a smartphone from Facebook's point of view, would that make sense today? Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like I, you know, from my perspective, I have very little expertise to bring to this answer. So I'm just completely <laughs> guessing. But I think the mobile space is obviously extremely lucrative if you can be successful there. If you can't make a dent, then I don't think it's worth the resources. So for a company like Facebook who's got so much, you know, who's got so much to spend, they might as well try. They probably aren't going to lose very much. And you know, based on the tech stack that Caleb just described, I know that I personally would love to develop for a JavaScript-based operating system. Mm-hmm. That's part of the appeal to me is you've got disenfranchised developers in the Apple ecosystem and in the Android ecosystem. And I feel like the downside is really capped. You look at Amazon with the Fire Phone, was it really a waste? They spent a billion dollars, they got a better understanding of the hardware supply chain. There was probably some synergies with the Echo team. The Echo had not been released at that time, so it probably accelerated the development of Echo, which has obviously become a smash hit. It seems like there's almost no downside to this. <laughs> well, a billion dollars is is a downside. <laughs> and, you know, the brand, the brand impact, the brand equity you lose. Sure, but if you, I mean, maybe you lose a little brand equity, but it seems like people trust the Echo just fine. And, you know, if, if we said, okay, the, you know, Amazon spent a billion dollars to accelerate the development of Echo by a minuscule amount. I mean, I think it's pretty easy to see that the Echo ecosystem is multi-billion dollar industry. And if that, if we think of that $1 billion as a write-off towards development of the Echo, pretty good investment. Mm. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Well, yeah. so, but let's, let's talk about alternatives. So Facebook obviously is getting into hardware. I don't know if you guys saw the article recently that talked about building eight at Facebook, but it's their super secret labs. It's sort of like the Facebook equivalent of Google X. And they're working on hardware. They're working on e-commerce stuff. So it's clear that Facebook is going to get into hardware. I mean, why wouldn't they? Of course, the lesson from Apple is there's something to be said for last mover advantage. So maybe Facebook is waiting for somebody else to release the first augmented reality product. And then Facebook can wait a little bit and release something that's incrementally better so the first person who comes out with augmented reality looks like a fool, they look like an over-aggressive first mover, and Facebook gets to look like, in comparison, a shining example. What are the pros and cons for Facebook? Because, okay, so like I feel like augmented reality is something that's there. Everybody's got their little augmented reality stuff in the lab somewhere. They could release it aggressively, or they could wait a bit. What are the pros and cons of being the first mover in the augmented reality space? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from bigger companies hyping up a product and launching it to underwhelming response. So Google Glass comes to mind where there's yeah. a lot of hype around Google Glass. And to a degree, it's, it's hard to be a bigger company and invest a massive amount of resources into a product and not hype it up. I mean, you either go all or nothing. You either believe in it or you don't believe in it, which I don't think you, know, you have to take that route, but a lot of companies do. And so I think probably it's better to not be the first mover in the augmented reality space because there hasn't ever been, to my knowledge, a popular augmented reality product. Snap spectacles? <laughs> how well, well, like that's, how well are those doing? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's more like a hardware product too. Like the real augmented reality Snapchat stuff is the is the filters more so than spectacles. I'd say, you know, getting the first mover advantage in AR would be super valuable for Facebook. Like how far off do you think the, the tech companies are from releasing an AR product? It's so hard to tell. You know, there's some stuff going on at Magic Leap. You know, yeah. I, I don't know. It's it's so hard to tell. Out of all, all of them, I kind of feel like Facebook has Facebook and Google are the two with the, the biggest advantage, right? Because Google has the Google Glass and then Facebook has a lot of money and the social network because the data Facebook brings to the table from Facebook.com and like you can walk around and pop up over everyone's head and see their account. Like that's super valuable. So certainly, it, but this is, I think this is the mistake people make in counting out Apple because people are always like, Apple's got all this cash. What are they investing it in? They're investing it in augmented reality. They're just not talking about it. Yeah, but I can totally see Apple wanting to take the last mover step. They're going to, whatever they build, they're going to like take forever <laughs> to build. Right. It's what they did with the iPhone. Yeah. So in the meantime, Facebook could come out, drop their AR product, capture market, and then, you know, maybe Apple comes along after that. I'm not so sure that the first mover advantage will allow them to have any sort of permanent market capture, though. If you have a product yeah. that's really not that good. There's a tricky balance there, right? If you're really trying well, to, mm -hmm. to build a mode around your product, you need some sort of proprietary tech advantage or some sort of network effects, which obviously Facebook is well poised to have. But if the product isn't there and people don't like it that much, like take a look at the Oculus, which is not augmented reality, but like how many mm -hmm. people are using an Oculus? How many people do you know who have an Oculus? What's to stop? I mean, the VR explosion just hasn't happened yet to the degree where any company can gain enough market share to say that they've got a foothold that someone else can't later catch up and surpass them with, with a totally new product that's just better. I think it's similar to mobile phones. Well, why do people stay on Facebook? I mean, theoretically, it's possible to take like React and all the open source Facebook's building and kind of build like a quote unquote Facebook clone, right? People stay on Facebook because all their data is there and all their friends are there. If Facebook can have a really tight integration with their data and their AR product, even if the AR product is suboptimal, then you know, people are still kind of locked into to the data there and to the experience they have thanks to that data. Yeah, or totally. would, would you think that maybe Facebook would be super quick to build the AR app for the Apple <laughs> AR product? <laughs> I think what you said makes a lot of sense. I think Facebook's primary advantage is their data and, and the social network, obviously, of people that it's just hard to dismantle or to, to build some sort of competing product. But the question remains to be, remains to be seen whether or not the uses for augmented reality will, will center around your personal data and whether or not it will be mm -hmm. a, a software solution as much as it is a hardware solution. It's quite possible that, you know, we'll see five or 10 years of everybody building augmented reality solutions and ultimately none of them will, will win. It will be a software play that wins. And I think Facebook is well placed yeah. to win that, but that doesn't necessarily yeah. count on them having a first mover advantage. Well, for fun, what do you think like the, the big app for AR is going to be? Like off the top of my head, I think being able to see people's LinkedIn profiles in AR would be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. I think I think there might be a little bit of public backlash though. Because you <laughs> think about Google Glass, I mean, it's like, okay, why did people not like Google Glass? It was a little bit sketchy. It was a little bit, you don't know exactly what this person is doing. Are they recording you? Are they taking photos of you? And once it gets mm -hmm. even to a further step, you know, can people see your LinkedIn profiles and your personal data just by looking at you and identifying you on the street? I think there's a whole social aspect of that where yeah. we can look at movies and we can see what's cool, but I don't think people would really stand for that. 
So how interesting would it be? Just kind of imagine a world where, you know, if you see like someone famous on the street, you know, you got to go up and take a picture. How interesting would it be if you see someone you never seen before on the street, but their Twitter bubble pops up and they say they have like 10,000 followers. You know, what do you do at that point? Man, (laughs) that would be incredibly interesting. How many Twitter followers does someone have over their head? (laughs) Well, so I think the big utility of augmented reality, you know, Caleb, you talked about what's the killer app. I think the killer app is getting us to look up from our smartphone because all of the time where, you know, we're, we're currently in this this mode of operating where, you know, you're having a conversation with somebody and you're context switching between reality and your phone. And that sucks. It, it also makes sense to a point. I mean, you guys know I'm not allergic to technology and I'm willing to be in an intimate conversation with somebody and then say, Hey, I just remembered, you know, this there's this article that would be really relevant to what we're talking about right now. Hold on one second while I look it up. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you know, that sucks. It's a context switch. It's often worth it to to keep the conversation going. To, yeah. You know, you guys are both intellectuals and you you want a conversation that's rooted in in the facts. And sometimes, you know, if you're having a conversation with somebody and you can't remember the facts about something, you pause to look it up and it would be, you know, I think just introducing more facts and, and information and oh. integrating the raw, well-structured information of the internet with the organic conversations that we're having day to day. I see that as wonderful, but yeah. it's going to take a mindset shift because, you know, to what you said about, Corlin, to what you said about virtual reality, why don't people use virtual reality? I don't know if you guys have tried virtual reality. It makes me uncomfortable how engaging and addictive it is. And it's just like, I don't know if I'm ready for this. It's almost like, you mm-hmm. know, you, you, you it's almost like you're in college and, you know, you, you take a hit of some <laughs> drug and you're like, okay, that's like the last time I try that for a while. Like, I'm going to wait until, you know, we either have like the pharmaceutical version of this that I know is a little better tested. You know, and I'm just like, I don't want, you know, I've heard about these people. I remember hearing about this with Google Glass. There was some dude who got admitted to a psychiatric institution because he had overused yeah. Google Glass. And he was like, even when he wasn't wearing the Google Glass, he was like swiping in front of his face and like, I don't want to develop. <laughs> those kind of tendencies yeah i can i can imagine like a google autocomplete while you're talking and you're searching for the word and, and google <laughs> right. tells you what the word is but like how awkward would it be if if you're in a conversation we're sitting down it's like oh i read this really great article wait one second and you keep eye contact the entire time while you kind of like move your hand up and down trying to, to scroll or search <laughs> through it with your mind or something like to me that's that's even more awkward than pulling out your phone and maybe typing for a couple seconds did you guys see that movie her where essentially everybody's yeah. got a, yes. have a smartphone in their pocket with a camera facing out and, and just an earpiece in. Mm. So it's not mm-hmm. like some sort yes. of thing obstructing their face and they can, you know, do what you were saying and get live information from the internet about any topic that they're talking about. Right. I thought that user interface was super cool. And that lends itself more to what you see with Google Home or Amazon Echo, where it's how do you develop a you know, a voice controlled user interface that's totally hands off. And yeah, I get the point as well that it might be awkward <laughs> to maintain eye contact <laughs> while, Actually, while talking to your computer. Yeah. Well, Cortland, that, that's a great point because that's probably going to be a product that comes out before augmented reality. I would assume so. Yeah. Or do you think we have to worry about noise pollution in that world, in the Alexa world? Oh, of course. That's like case in point for why nobody is going to want to be first mover because... You know, yeah. Apple, let's, let's say Apple's like, oh, we got our AirPods going. We got some users on AirPods. Now let's do 
Siri version of her. Like, oh, we've yeah. like if Apple says, "Hey, we've been secretly working on a different version of Siri. It's a million times better. That's why we didn't acquire Viv. You know, we've got something brand new and we're releasing it." Then they release it and the the UX, the actual UX is like, "Oh, I'm talking to somebody and all of a sudden Siri 2.0 interrupts me and like and I have to say to the person I'm in a conversation with like, "Oh, oh, oh, hold on. My my AirPods interrupted me while you were saying that and I couldn't hear either of you at that time. So like that's I mean that's why Google and and Alexa both do not do voice push notifications. Right. Yeah. And that, that seems to me like a, a user interface issue that could potentially be solved with some clever solution that allows you to just mute the thing at, at the appropriate mm-hmm. times, but I mean we're also heading into the territory where this is just augmenting human capabilities to such a degree. I mean if you could walk around with a little earpiece in that could give you the information that you need at the right time with you know very little input from you, then you're essentially, on the internet is now part of your brain in a way that it's not when you have a smartphone. Like, I got a Google Glass. I think it was like the Explore, the Explorer edition. I got it before it was no longer cool. And <laughs> just the, like to your point, Jeff, about the guy who was addicted to it, just the ease of being able to move my hand up to my face and get some information very quickly versus pulling out my smartphone, it seems like it's not that different. But it's around like four or five times faster. And so I would just do things more often. I would send more text messages. I would make more phone calls because it was just five times easier. If we had some sort of interface where people could actually just get information directly into their ear, I think they would probably be using it constantly. And they would probably enable individual people to do things they normally couldn't do. I mean, you could climb under your car, for example, and just fix your car and not be a mechanic because Mm -hmm. you're just getting instructions live fed into your your ear and things like that. Mm -hmm. So we'd all become kind of superhuman in a way. Yeah, that would be interesting. You get to pick up your woodworking hand. Mm-hmm. Cortland, it sounds like for you, the Google Glass was too good, and that's what made it too early to market. You know, we had these pictures of quote-unquote glass holes, and you see people around like, oh, I saw some asshole wearing his Google Glass the other day. Like, what makes <laughs> him an asshole? I mean, this I, I think this is indicative of the, the growing divide between the tech people and the non-technical people where there's a sense of resentment and any sort of dividing line that is indicative of income ability and that lends itself to a further accrual of power, which is, you know, Google Glass. If it's if it really was this massive piece of utility, I think that's why it didn't work. I don't think it was like, this thing sucks. I never heard somebody who had a Google Glass say, this thing was total garbage. Uh, yeah. I, I've heard more people say that about, about Apple Watch. Yeah, it definitely mm. did not suck. It was good in a lot of ways. It made things easier. I don't think that it was good enough to be worth the fashion cost. I think every society has a concept of fashion where people will be, there will be moral outrage based on violating totally arbitrary fashion norms and wearing a a computer on your face violated fashion norms to a humongous degree. And and it didn't help, you know, from the financial standpoint that you mentioned, it didn't help that Google made everybody who's an explorer pay $1,500 $1,500 for this experimental prototype. You know, they, I think they were, they were focused on trying to demonstrate that it had business value and that they could make money off of it. When in reality, they just made everybody who bought one seem like a rich, entitled asshole. Because the first thing anyone asks you when you walk into a bar and wearing Google Glass is, where did you get it? And how much did that cost you? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about online advertising. Advertisers are pulling their ads from YouTube we have articles trending on Hacker News where people are saying they're done with Google. They're not going to use Google AdSense to monetize their product anymore. 
are we seeing the beginning of the end for the online advertising industry as it stands today? No, I I don't think so at all. I think advertising is too powerful a tool that it's never going to go in in any capacity on any platform. And even even if there are some people pulling away from online advertising, that just makes online advertising cheaper so that the people who wouldn't, you know, get online advertising before because it was so expensive can now just come in and buy some more ads. So, you know, maybe it's not right for some companies and for what they want to accomplish, but I don't necessarily think it means that online advertising is going away. Do you think it is? I think there are some massive factors that are not factored into the market price of online advertising. You know I've done so many shows about advertising yeah. fraud. I think the biggest problem is that you cannot tell if a user is a bot or not. And if you're somebody who is buying advertising from a company that is selling you online advertising, whether there's some sort of middleman distribution platform like AppNexus or you're buying from Facebook or Google, if you have a contact at that company and you can ask them, hey, how do you know that the ads that I'm paying you for are getting served to real users and not bots? They will not be able to give you a straight answer. And the more advertisers start to ask that question the more light will be shed on this problem. Because you guys both know I've been reporting on this super aggressively, and basically nobody cares. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So then what are the alternatives? The two alternatives I can think of are regulation and perhaps, you know, like monetary-driven ad results versus views or clicks. I think it'll be really tough to regulate. I think this is going to be something where the market responds and says, we're not paying for this garbage, and they're going to look for other ways to shift their money such as to things like podcast advertising and <laughs> well, that is, stuff that's like that. has got just as many problems. <laughs> it has some problems, but so, and also like, okay, so let me put it, let me put it more directly. And I think this applies to, to you too, Cortland. I think this is how you do advertising on indie hackers. Instead of selling based on clicks or some sort of metrics driven campaign, you sell based on the amount of time that it runs against your content. So if you say, you know, Hey, Nike, you get ads on my podcast. You know, every episode will have a a Nike ad for the next two months. And we'll look at the metrics and there will be some correlation between the cost and how many listeners there are. But we know there's a lot of bots out there and we're not going to charge you based on, you know, what percentage of listens we get. We'll just charge you based on time. Cortland, that's how you do advertising on Indie Hackers, right? So it varies. I think what you're talking about brings up a point that I've learned dealing with advertisers because they've only been doing ad sales for the past like four or five months and I've learned a lot about it and really you've got like Nike would be a brand advertiser they might not care they probably don't care about conversions they just want to get their brand out there Coca-Cola McDonald's any big company like that Apple Microsoft versus maybe smaller advertisers who are trying to grow their business from you know a medium or small size and trying to find some channel that's going to get them customers at a cheaper rate than other channels and they really do care about conversions. They want to invest money in places where they're actually going to get clicks and they're actually going to get customers who pay them. Otherwise, it's not worth them spending the money because they don't have the money to blow. So I think it really depends on what types of, types of advertisers that we're talking about. But yeah, for, for brand advertisers, for sure, you could probably just sell them on time. You could just tell them how much reach your podcast has and they probably won't care about clicks at all. To what degree do you think brand advertising is actually effective? <laughs> That's a good question. 
because I remember being a kid and always always complaining about it on TV. I was like, why do, why do I have to watch another McDonald's commercial? Everybody knows what McDonald's is. It's just a waste of their money and a waste of my time. But then it's, you know, the, the question arises: Why do we all know what McDonald's is, right? And really, earlier we were talking about moats, and I was saying, you know, a couple of the moats that your company can have are network effects or proprietary technology. But another big one is just economies of scale. When you can afford to do things that your smaller competitors simply can't. And I think as long as they're giant companies with a lot of money to blow, whether or not brand advertising works, it's something that they can do that their competitors can't, and so they're going to invest in it. Well, but you think hmm. about the brands that have been built over the past 10 years. None of them are built off of brand advertising, I don't think. I mean, you think about Dollar Shave Club or Amazon or Uber or Chipotle or Panera Breads. All of these companies, they deliver something that is qualitatively different than their competitors, and they build awareness for that product through brand advertising, but the core product is differentiated. Yeah, for sure. And I'll be the first to say that you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to build an inferior product that people don't find useful, or that doesn't solve some problem or satisfy some drive, and then just make up for it with advertising. You're just you're just gonna lose a lot of money <laughs> if you go that route. But at the same time, I think that companies are as there's the growth story, how do you get big, how do you take over, but there's also the how do you stay big story. And if you look at any graph mm-hmm. or any chart of the top you know, 10 or 50 or 100 companies from any time period, companies die. Most companies don't last for 30 or 40 or 50 years. And especially public companies or big juggernauts are always worried. Facebook is probably always worried about what's going to kill them, what might kill them, and how do we eliminate those threats. So I think a lot of advertising is, is defensive as well. It's not so much how do we use brand advertising to become mm-hmm. A juggernaut, but it's like, how do we? What advantages do we have that we can take it that we can use to, you know, maybe stave off our inevitable demise as a company? And a brand advertising for bigger companies might be a tool in that toolbox. When you guys look at the fundamental computer science problems faced by large advertising companies, I mean, personally, I see two main problems. So one is the YouTube problem that people are pulling their their brands because of, which is we don't want our brands associated with controversial content. We told that to YouTube, and they still matched us with controversial content. The indication there is that Google cannot detect controversial content on the fly. It's too hard. They can't put a, a human in the loop for every submission to YouTube. Or if they try to do that, then the quality of the human in the loop goes down. The less frequently discussed issue is how can you identify bot traffic at scale do either of these problems seem solvable to you two? Yeah, I definitely think the controversial content problem can be solved. I'm not confident that the bot traffic content can be solved because with bot traffic, the actor on the other end is always fighting to to undo whatever you did. And on the controversial content side, like that's it's a little easier to even, you know, crowdsource that. So if someone reports you know, a video, then all of a sudden that goes into a queue or something, or you start building up a database of what is controversial and what's not, and you can train machine learning algorithms off of that. I think it's expensive. There's no clear answer, but it's solvable because it's a fixed problem, unlike bot traffic. Yeah, I I agree. I think the first one is more of a technological solution. Like you said, you could maybe crowdsource it. Maybe someone will invent better technology. You know, as AI gets better, maybe we could automate it. The second one seems to me more like a social problem, which is if everybody yeah. agreed to use the same software, 
you know, maybe every single user uses Facebook login to go to any given website and or some sort of open source tool, then we would, the problem would be solved, and you would be able to you know identify what who's viewing what at any given time. But like, okay, how's that going to actually come to pass? Probably it will never come to pass. So it's more of a social and a technological problem, and I don't see a solution to it. Well, even then, how hard would it be for a bot network to create? fake Facebook accounts, you know, infuse it with a bunch of data that's, you know, like adjective shuffled from a normal user's account, right? And then use that. Right. It's, I mean, at so that then point, it's, like, it's like, in order to, in order to verify the user, you need to give like your social security number and something exactly. on Facebook. Right. So it's like, okay, where people are like, technologically, it's not hard to ask people for their social security number, but socially, yeah. are people going to do that? I don't think anyone's going to opt into any kind of system that would work. Yeah. Let's talk about developer tools. You guys are both programmers. Cortland, as the person running Indie Hackers, you see how people are building stuff constantly. Caleb, you're just a hacker. You've written a lot about open source tools. You've obviously reported on stuff through Software Engineering Daily. What is the coolest paid tool? Let's start with Cortland. Cortland, what is the coolest paid tool that you saw for the first time recently? Can I punt on this for one minute? I got to look it up in my inbox because I don't. Okay, all right, Caleb, you go. Yeah. So, disclaimer: I am a little biased. I did a bit of contracting for Meteor and Apollo, but I really like their Apollo Optics tool. That's like the the perfect tool for GraphQL. If you're sold on GraphQL and if you like GraphQL and if you're going to use GraphQL, like Apollo Optics is the perfect tool for you. You, it's it's almost required to create a GraphQL server. And if you're not into GraphQL, then Optics is you know a great reason to start using GraphQL because you get these great these great observability features. You can see the waterfall of your request as it goes through your system. It's, you know, it's a really great product for for monitoring response time in a in a domain specific application language. Explain why you're bullish on GraphQL. I I'm just getting, what one quick <laughs> side point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to me, GraphQL represents the ideal way that myself as a UI engineer would interact and talk with data from the server, right? So I think about my application as a tree, right? Whether it be an HTML DOM tree or a view tree in in a native application. And REST does not exactly mirror that. So REST is more, you know, graph structured or something else. But GraphQL allows me to think about my data and to fetch my data in the same way that I think about and build my user interfaces. So GraphQL allows you to fetch your data as a tree and then throw that right into your component tree, your UI tree. And then on top of that, it gives you a whole bunch of UI consistency features that are a pain to implement and that require a lot of expertise and a lot of custom work if you're going to use a custom one-off REST API. Whereas with GraphQL, because it's standardized, you can put a lot of these core fundamental real-time and and data merging features, data consistency features into frameworks and abstract that across all applications versus requiring a different custom solution for each API. I hope that explains it well. Sometimes right. I feel like, it you does. know, I'm so deep into GraphQL, it, it's kind of hard to explain and especially hard to explain to people who might not be familiar and comfortable with using a REST API. I think that's the best explanation I've come to today. <laughs> no, no. Good explanation. All right, Corland, first, the coolest paid tool you saw recently. Okay, so I am probably not the best person to answer this question simply because I tend to go into these funks whenever I'm working on a company or a product where I just stop paying attention to all of the new tech that comes out and I only focus on like, how do I grow my thing? How do I connect with customers or users? And then after I get to the end of it, I like, it's like I wake up out of a stupor and I like look at the world around me and like everything is just new and different. So 
if I had to name a tool that I think is cool, I think Kite is cool. It's basically, they describe it as the smart co-pilot for programmers, and it's basically this app that sits open next to your ID as you develop and pulls in useful contextual information from the internet to help you write the code that you're writing. It's pretty new, and I don't know exactly how well it's doing, but I've taught a few people to code in my lifetime, and I think it would be incredibly useful to have some sort of automatic you know, tool that augments your programming ability for people who are learning to code. I think a lot of times people spend... You need like just really good Google food to learn to code, basically, because mm-hmm. you're going to constantly mm-hmm. run into errors that you need to Google. It's simply aren't going to be in, in the textbook that you're learning from or whatever course you're learning from. And if there's actually a tool that could sit there and look at what you're trying to do, analyze it, come up with the most likely problems that you're experiencing, and just service that to you instantaneously, I think we would see tremendous increases in the number of people who successfully learn to code, which would change the world in a lot of ways. So I think Kite is pretty have cool. You, have you used it? I haven't actually work? used it. They just okay. came out. They just released support for Python, uh, which, uh-huh. which I think is going to expand its reach a little bit. And, and like I said, I kind of just go into these holes where I don't use any of the new stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just mm-hmm. kind of read about it every now and then. I'm not sure that it works, but I think we're going in the right direction. And I can't imagine a world five or ten years from now where there isn't something like this that is working and impactful. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. It does sound super exciting. Just trying to imagine it working in like the the stacks that I work with daily. <laughs> it's like there's so many different moving parts. I'd be fascinated to see it work. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's why I think it's, it's, its application is probably, I mean, right now I think they're targeting it a lot at a lot of developers, but I think in the long run, I would bet it would be for beginners because for someone like yeah. you, okay, it's like you're using like how many different languages and how many different, you know, you're like you're going over to the server, <laughs> well, you're doing like you know, yeah. Backend stuff. That's still a lot of Stack Overflow on Google, though. <laughs> it would be great <laughs> to just be fed Stack Overflow answers. <laughs> I, I, well, I've done some shows about static analysis tools. I think I did a show with a company called BitHound, which does static analysis. And this is basically you do a Git push and somewhere in the push workflow it does analysis of your code and can say do you have a security flaw are you mm-hmm. importing the the right up to date version of your javascript package do you have some sort of null pointer type of situation happening and obviously this is a really hard area of work but there is constant work going and you can imagine it basically like it's the equivalent of the Google Glass thing that the manufacturing yeah. engineer wears or the mechanic wears that yeah. is constantly giving them, hey, you might want to do this. I mean, it's got to be a little better than, I mean, where if you could say, okay, okay, kite, like find me the answer on Stack Overflow or something, that's so much better than like context switching to Stack Overflow and, yeah. you know, doing a search there and then you're like, oh, this isn't the right answer and before you know it, you're browsing Facebook. Yeah. The way I was thinking about it is it doesn't, you know, just statically look at your code, but it somehow hooks into your terminal or something so that whenever an error stack trace pops up, it takes the error message or whatever in the, the stack trace and is able to narrow it down to the GitHub repository and to issues that look like this one. Yeah. So we're going to get to Stripe in a sec, but when, yeah, I was using Stripe recently and I had a question for support. And what was cool about the support interface is as you're typing your support query, there's a little thing on the right where it's looking through the the FAQ mm-hmm. and the documentation of Stripe, and it's looking for the answer that most 
closely matches your support query semantically. So it's almost like you've got this real-time interface of support information. So, may, oh, maybe you don't have to mm-hmm. actually file the support ticket. We've got this live updating search query on past support tickets and FAQ stuff. And I was like, this is really smart. And I haven't seen this in a whole lot of other places where you're literally entering a query and it's like asynchronously doing a predictive thing. And <laughs> But I, I mean, that's essentially what Kite would do for your program. Yeah. So Stack Overflow does actually do that, where if you are mm. opening a new question and you start typing the answer in the body of the question, it'll right. pop up similar questions. And I've actually found that sometimes that can be better than Googling the error message or searching Stack Overflow is popping mm. up a, a new question. As you start to think about it more and think about how you'd word the problem, it, it actually pops up. Okay, open source tools. Mm-hmm. Coolest new open source tool you saw recently. Yeah. So You can say GraphQL. GraphQL. <laughs> no, so I think the obvious answer for me would probably be Expo. And I was actually bearish on Expo before talking with the team on React Native. I thought, oh, you know, it's just overhead that if you know you're a raw React engineer, you just pull up React Native and, and do your stuff. But what I kind of realized when talking to them is this idea of the the shared native runtime is the words they use, which really um, uh, caught my imagination, enables a whole bunch of interesting things. So you can basically do everything you could do when deploying to the web. So like posting JavaScript to an endpoint and automatically reloads, um, better error tracking, etc. But you could do that on a native app, and that's kind of insane. And if you have a Windows machine, you can program for an iPhone, you know, because there's a shared native runtime. So probably Expo and and some of the stuff around React Native would be mine. And I'm in the same boat with this question as I was last time. I'm behind, but <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Ember.js. You know, a lot of front-end developers have their favorite framework, and I've been with Ember for years. And they just released Glimmer.js, which is kind of their yeah. rendering engine. And I think one of the problems for people adopting Ember.js in the past is it's, it's a solution that you go to when you want to build your entire website from scratch, and it's going to be a single-page app. But it's a little bit unapproachable for some people because compared to React, for example, you just jump in, you build one component at a time, and that's all you have to learn about the React stack. And then if you want to build a router, okay, then you learn one new thing. Whereas Ember kind of forces you to learn the entire thing. So Glimmer, I think, is their attempt mm-hmm. to kind of decouple some certain parts of Ember from other parts of Ember and, and allow people to bite off a smaller chunk. So I think it's really cool, and I know I will be using it on future projects. Hmm. All right. Yeah. Let's shift the topic again. So... Cortland Indie Hackers was recently acquired by Stripe. Congratulations on that. Thanks. And I wanted to I wanted to talk to you about what you learned from the process of building something from scratch, not raising any money, you bootstrapped it entirely and getting to a point where you could sell it to Stripe. Take me through that process or at least uh, you don't have to take me through the entire process because uh, people have heard that episode. Or if people haven't heard, we did an episode with you. It was a very popular episode. What are the important lessons that you learned in building indie hackers from bootstrapping to acquisition? Looking back. Yeah, so just to kind of put it the context of that question, bootstrapping from like the very founding of indie hackers to the acquisition point is more of a just an arbitrary period of time and less of a, you know, I had a goal to get in fact, when I got the email from Patrick Carlson at Stripe, I was shocked that anyone would want to buy Indie Hackers because it's, it's basically you know a one-man blog, mm. one-man media site, <laughs> not the kind of thing that you build to get acquired. And I was focused the last five months on 
really doing nothing but generating revenue because the entire point of the project was to, to be self-sustaining, to be independent, and to be able to provide my own income without having to work a job elsewhere. So all the lessons that I've learned are, are more aligned with how to build a good product, how to build something that people like, and how to, how to make money from that project. Mm-hmm. And they're not really aligned with how to get acquired because I think that depends entirely on the acquirer. What Stripe is looking for at any given moment is going to be totally different than what any other acquirer is looking for. And I think probably one of the worst things you could do is build a company with the sole intention of getting acquired because it relies so much on just like the arbitrary whims of one or two human beings at that company. But yeah, I think a lot of the lessons that I learned at Indie Hackers, I learned in a sort of meta way by doing the interviews for Indie Hackers. So for those who don't know, Indie Hackers is a website where I talk to developers mostly and other entrepreneurs about their profitable side projects and businesses. And I ask them, how did you come up with your idea? How did you grow your user base and find your first paying customers? How much money are you making? Everybody shares their monthly revenue. And inside these interviews, there's a lot of lessons, as you can imagine, that people have learned the hard way. You know, and they share with everybody else so that you don't have to learn it the hard way. And I've taken a lot of those lessons to heart myself. I feel like, you know, eight months after starting Indie Hackers, I can look back on myself eight months ago and say, wow, I was a total noob when it came to marketing and sales and building a product that people would actually like just because of the number of lessons that I've learned by doing the interviews. So I would recommend anybody who's listening to go check out those interviews if that's a goal that you have. But there's certain things that, that for example, one thing that, that blocks a lot of people is competition. They think, hey, I want to come up with a new idea or I want to start working on this project, but there's already someone in the space who's solving this problem and therefore I can't do it. When in reality, when you start to look at the examples, the fact that a space is crowded with lots of competitors almost always means that the problem that's being solved it's a very real problem that solves a customer pain point that a lot of people are searching for. So it's usually pretty lucrative. And what you need to do is not differentiate and try to solve a different problem than your competitors necessarily, but you just need a little bit of a unique solution. So if you're in like a winner-take-all market like social networking, yeah, you're probably not going to dethrone Facebook. But if you're in a different market like, let's say, analytics, well, different customers have different needs when it comes to analytics or advertising, like we were talking about earlier. There's brand advertisers who have completely different needs than small-time advertisers who are just trying to get conversions. So you really need to differentiate your solution and not run away from problems because there's competitors. In fact, you can use competitors to define how you're different. Nathan Barry, for example, from ConvertKit, basically does email marketing, and he's got huge competitors like MailChimp, and he loves the fact that MailChimp exists because he can tell people when they ask about ConvertKit. Mm-hmm oh, it's like MailChimp for professional bloggers. And if you're a professional blogger and you hear that, which one are you going to use, MailChimp or MailChimp for professional bloggers? You're going to use the second <laughs> one. So I think that's a really big lesson that I've taken to heart. I'm at MicroConf right now talking to a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs, and that's the one I, I find myself repeating to them over and over and over again. Don't, don't worry about the competition. Just make sure you're solving a problem that people actually need solved and then differentiate on your solution. The problem that you were solving with Indie Hackers was a problem of media. And I can speak firsthand that there is so much opportunity in the media industry, especially for engineers. And if you're an engineer who doesn't know what business to start, first of all, there's a million good pieces of advice on IndieHackers.com, how, you know, advice on, in, on ideation and whatnot. But if you still can't think of anything after looking at Indie Hackers, just go into media. Be a media person mm-hmm. that reports on software, <laughs> and it's, it's so easy. And the downside is totally capped because, worst case scenario, you, you learn a ton about software. I mean, when I started Software Engineering Daily, I was like, okay, 
I've got enough money to last me for like four months and hopefully I can get to break even by then. But if not, I'll just have worked really hard and learned a lot about software and my downside will be completely capped. It'll be like I just, you know, it's like people take out student loans to go learn with that sort of expected mm-hmm. value or worse mm-hmm. expected value. Right. So you might as well start a media company and interview the smartest people in the industry for free. <laughs> I like that point a lot because I feel the same way with indie hackers. Like the amount that I've learned is totally worth the amount that I invested into the company. I, I did a similar thing, just saving up money and then living off of my savings. But if indie hackers never made a dime, never got acquired, just the amount of information that I've learned by talking to people who've done it would have made it worth it. The big question I want to ask you about working on indie hackers is around working productively with your brother because recently I started Ad for Prize. It's like another company I'm working on. And I hired my brother for some contract work and, you know, in the process of giving him some equity. And, you know, I love my brother. I admire him as a developer. I love his skill set. He is five years younger than me. So there is a gulf in mindset. There's a gulf in experience. There's not a gulf in talent, but he has different skills than I do. And the risk is amplified by the fact that you really don't want to have a falling out with a family member in a business context. How do you protect against that sort of thing when you're working with your brother? Yeah, it's funny because I see it almost the exact opposite way. I think this is just a testament to the fact that every family is completely different. But my brother, for those who don't know, it's my twin brother. We grew up basically fighting and arguing about everything under the sun for 18 years. It's pretty clear. And then we lived together in San Francisco for another six years in our 20s. And it's clear to me at this point that there doesn't exist something that could, that could occur that would ruin our relationship, at least not in a business mm-hmm. context. And so in that way, working with my brother is safer than working with any other random co-founder because I know that we could disagree on, vehemently disagree on almost anything. And ultimately, our personal relationship won't be ruined, and we'll probably be able to work it out. So it really, I think, depends on, on you know, your family relations. And also, I'm in a kind of a similar situation to you, where my brother, you know, he majored in literature. He's written two novels. He didn't come from a tech background, whereas I was coding when I was in middle school. So I actually taught him to code four or five years ago, and he kind of got into this industry. So there's kind of a gulf and experience, and a kind of a gulf and and knowledge there. And also I started Indie Hackers by myself and he only started working with me a couple months ago. So yeah, there's a lot of, I think, teaching and guidance that has to go on. But I talked to Laura Roeder, the founder of Meet Edgar the other day, and she had really good things to say about managing people and how she kind of grew as a person and grew as a manager by getting practice. And the thing that she had to say was that you don't want to delegate, right? You don't want to send someone off and give them a task and have them come back and then Say, okay, you did it all wrong. Here, let me make my fixes and then change it. What you really want to do is empower people and give them ownership and autonomy so they just own something and they can do it to the best of their ability. So that's what I've been trying to do with my brother and onboarding him to Andy Hackers. I'm just like, okay, edit this interview. It's yours. We're going to push it live. You know? And yeah. you know, nowadays we're, we're mm. going to work on improving the community forum a lot. And that's something that I personally haven't touched in months. So I imagine we'll divide up responsibilities in some way where he can have ownership of some part and I can have ownership over some part. And we can both take pride in, in trying to do a good job rather than, you know, one of us having to micromanage the other. Those are all the tips I got now. I mean, I'm pretty new to this. This might go up in flames. But, you know, personally, I, I, I know that no matter what happens, like, we're always going to have a good relationship as brothers. And the acquisition 
it makes so much sense for Stripe because Stripe's goal is to increase the GDP of the internet. It makes sense to have a media outlet around Stripe or within Stripe that is reporting on and encouraging this burgeoning indie hacker world because indie hackers, like many other startups, is one of these things where it looks like it's a small industry. Who cares about these indie hackers that are just making these small side businesses? There's even this condescending term lifestyle business. And as you know, this is basically a, a just a made-up term for by venture capitalists to make entrepreneurs feel worse so that they can lower the valuation of that company and get a better deal. And it's like, <laughs> you know, you've seen enough quote-unquote lifestyle businesses that are making a quarter million dollars every month to know that the term doesn't mean anything. So I love the fact that Stripe acquired it, and I, I am really looking forward to seeing like support and investment that will come from Stripe affecting affecting indie hackers and i i i you know I, I know we were talking some about like working together on some podcast stuff i hope you know or, or i want you to know, I, in any case those opportunities still remain if there's any kind of partnership we can do i think that'd be great i think stripe is stripe is an amazing company yeah i would love to do uh do a podcast episode on on software engineering daily i found podcasting so difficult to get into it's so hard for me to, to build up a regular rhythm of recording and it? editing i think I end up juggling a lot of tasks with indie hackers. So I'm editing the text interviews, I'm sending the newsletters, I'm strategizing for how to improve the community and coding there, dealing with a lot of email, a lot of tweets, a lot of DMs. And I end up doing things kind of last minute. So with podcasts, like I'll record three episodes and then I'll be like, okay, great, I'm set for three weeks. And then I don't necessarily edit them until like right at the last minute where I have to edit them. And it's like kind of the only thing in my schedule that is scheduled. So for the interviews, I can do them kind of whenever I want. But a podcast, I have to actually carve out a block of time and my calendar and meet with someone. And that's something that, like, you know, I think most people who've had jobs are probably used to doing. I've never had a full-time job in my life. I've never had to be anywhere at any given time. So I think living kind of like a, on a calendar-based schedule with the podcast and getting things out has been difficult for me. Huh. Yeah. Well, well, maybe we could talk about, I mean, Software Engineering Daily, maybe we can be your back end or help you out with that. some of that if if you want. But Caleb, you have been thinking about the podcast space. You've I know I've talked to you some about potential mm -hmm. tooling that you could create. What are the ways that you see the podcast industry as being broken? Well, so the the number one way that I think it's broken currently, well, there's two ways, actually. The first, on a, a technical perspective, there's no good way to, to get listener counts or to get good analytics for the people listening to your podcast, right? You host your podcast somewhere online, it's fed through an RSS feed, and then someone listens to it, or 50% of people will listen to it through the Apple iTunes app. And that's about it. You don't get any more analytics. You get perhaps partial downloads, so three downloads from one device while it's streaming. You might get a bunch of downloads from you know someone trying to do aggregate analysis over all podcasts. So it's very hard to discern if people listen, how long people listen, at what speed people listen, and all these other all these other data points that would greatly help both podcasters and advertisers get a, a better look at the industry. And the second problem is discovery. There's still currently no good way to find great podcasts other than word of mouth and viral growth in that direction. And, you know, iTunes has its directory or whatever, but like the top directory is the 500 podcasts that everyone knows, the top 500 everyone knows and talks about. And it's really hard to find new, interesting niche content that you might not be familiar with. 
great overview. Okay, so I know we're wrapping up on time here. You guys have both been tremendously helpful to Software Engineering Daily, helping it grow, helping us increase quality and different voices. I want to close off by just asking you, what are the areas that you think Software Engineering Daily can improve on, and where would you like to see us expand towards? I'd really love to see more you know, just general topic roundtable podcasts like this with, you know, consistent guests and on a separate feed, right? Kind of like, you know, Exponent, if you listen to Exponent, but, you know, from a a software engineering daily perspective, right? Because Jeff, you know, a lot of very interesting people with very interesting ideas. It would be great to sit some of the most popular guests down, right? Consistently every week or month or so, and to get an update on what they're thinking, right? Yeah, I think that's a great suggestion. I also would like a higher percentage of the episodes to be relevant to me, which is, you know, a bit of a selfish request yeah. because it's like, oh, who am I? You know, how do you know exactly what I want versus what a different listener wants? But it's easy for me to look at an episode and say, okay, well, this one, you know, I can skip because you know, I don't know that much about Lua, for example. Or, yeah. But I think the roundtable format, like this episode, has been really fun to be on because we're just kind of riffing on random topics, some of which I'm totally unqualified to speak towards, but I'm not <laughs> sharing my opinion anyway. <laughs> so yeah, more roundtables and more doing what Caleb said and using your expertise to find out, to find guests and partner them and pair them and see who would be, you know, good together. And based on what Cortland said, sometimes it's really easy to tell by the title what episodes I'm interested in, but sometimes it's definitely not because <laughs> all you get is a title and I'll have to listen to like the first, you know, five to 10 minutes to, to hear, is this guest interesting? Is this, um, you know, an interesting topic? And maybe that's a fault of the podcast format, not giving me more information about an episode before listening to it. Hmm. But yeah. Okay. Well, well, we'll close off there because I know you, you guys both got stuff you got to get to, but we will do more of these. I really enjoyed talking to you both. I mean, every, I mean, we, as you guys know, we didn't get to like half of the questions and mm-hmm. it, it seemed like every mm-hmm. discussion point had more ground to cover. That's probably a sign that we should do more of these. And, you know, I think to the point of what both you said, there's a lot of stuff that we cover that is not relevant to everybody. And I think this format is more accessible to a broader audience. So I will take that to heart. Okay, great. Cool. Well, thank you both. And Cortland, congratulations again. Caleb, congratulations, congratulations. on your, your excellent recent episodes. You know, if people have not checked out the WebAssembly episode with Brendan Ike and the episode Caleb did with the Exponent members, then you should check it out. So thanks for coming on, guys. Thanks, yeah, thanks so much for having us.